Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast. The following episode is part of our U.S.-China Horizons series. As bilateral tensions continue to rise, NCUSCR explores key developing areas in which the two countries continue to interact every day. These arenas are not without competition and friction. However, they could be fundamentally disrupted if the U.S. and China were to cease engagement in them. For more videos and podcasts from this series, please visit us at ncuscr.org horizons. Responding to domestic and international demand for seafood, China's state-owned and private fishing enterprises have amassed the largest fleet of industrial long-distance ships in the world. According to an ODI report published in June 2020, quote, the fleets of many industrialized countries are now traveling further afield to compensate for depleted stock in domestic waters. Much of this distant water fishing takes place in the territorial waters of low-income countries. As well as competing against the interests of local people, distant water fishing in low-income countries is often associated with unsustainable levels of extraction and with illegal, unreported, and unregulated, or IUU, fishing activities. Although China's distant water fleet is known to be large, there is little information available about its actual size and the scale of its operations. Recent assessments have produced estimates ranging from between 1,600 and 3,400 vessels. Today, Dr. Dehia Bel-Habib, Principal Investigator of Fisheries for Ecotrust Canada, breaks down how and where the fleet operates, who it impacts, and what steps must be taken to ensure sustainable and equitable fishing worldwide. Dr. Bel-Habib also serves as an advisor for the Sea Around Us and on the board of the Research Center of the Ministry of Fisheries of Algeria, as well as Fish Tracker. Her work focuses on fisheries equity, food security, and values associated with fishing and social finance. Dr. Bel-Habib holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia in Resource Management and Environmental Studies, a Master's in Science from the University of Quebec, and an Engineering degree from the Institute of Marine Sciences of Algiers. What is China's distant water fleet? Where are they and what are they doing? So China's distant water fleet is basically a number of vessels, many of them, I would say, um, that fish outside of the Chinese uh, waters or the waters under Chinese uh, jurisdiction. Uh, where are they? they? They're, I would say, a little bit everywhere uh, globally. Um, China is a distant water fishing nation. It is a fishing nation, and moreover, it is a distant water fishing nation. That means that they're um, in every country that they could be in. We actually uh, did a study in 2014, and we've identified that they were in most of the EEZs, uh, present in most of the exclusive economic zones of, um, of nations with coastal areas. Um, with the exception of Canada and the United States and some European countries. Could you mention whether these are state-owned fishing vessels, private or state-subsidized companies? It's a really a mix uh, between state-owned, private, um, privately owned, and joint ventures between states and uh, private companies. Sometimes the state is a shareholder. In the case of the Chinese National Fisheries Corporation, we call it also China National Fisheries Corp. Um, it's basically the state is, uh, I believe, 50% shareholder of this company. Um, sometimes it's also a joint venture between a private company and the coastal uh, or um, a company in the coastal country where they fish in. It doesn't only have to be uh, by Chinese ownership. 
Could you give a recent example of an illegal fishing operation conducted by one of these fleets? Uh, sure, let me think, because there are quite a few, I would say. Um, yes, a perfect example, I would say, is one that happened in Ghana. And I think that it's a good example because um, it kind of masks the uh, beneficial ownership of the vessel. So a vessel that is supposedly Ghanaian, uh, but investigations reveal that it was in fact owned and operated by a Chinese co a company, um, that had its foot in Ghana. Um, and this vessel has fished illegally. Uh, it has an authorization to fish in Ghana, a license, but it has infringed upon some gear regulations, zone regulations, and so it ended up being caught uh, by the Ghanaian enforcement. And since this vessel has been supposedly under uh, ownership in Ghana, they said that they could not pay the fine, which was, I believe, set at $1 million dollars. This happened last year. So the vessel went out um, and didn't pay its fine and was given a license to fish again shortly after uh, or was keeping, kept fishing. And this year, the same vessel was caught for the same offenses within the same waters uh, in Ghana, basically, and um, was also released after paying, I believe, a fine of twenty to forty thousand dollars. I'm not sure anymore, but it's basically really nothing in terms of, um, you know, a repeat offender in these waters. And this is a perfect example because it masks the real ownership of, uh, masking the real ownership of the vessel makes the fines really low. Wow. Would you say that this kind of illegal activity or underreporting of catches is a pervasive? practice amongst the distant water fleet? Absolutely. Um, I believe underreporting is a major issue, and not only for the Chinese fleet, but for every single distant water fleet I know of, including the EU. So basically, um, research that we did uh, showed that China under or reports um, basically 10% of its catches, nearly 10% of its catches. But at the same time, the EU, for example, the EU fleet reports only 30% of the catches. So basically this means that the vast majority of the catch remains unreported by whichever fleet. How do these distant water fishing operations affect local communities that rely on these fisheries? So there are various types of effects. So when you have a distant water fishing fleet that targets the same fish stock than small scale fishing communities, you will have obviously a lot of competition and a conflict there. In terms of catch opportunities, the small scale fishing fleet sees their catch opportunities decline. This means declines in revenues, declines in income, declines in opportunity to process the fish. So we have less jobs, on the shore. Um, but there is also a sentiment of frustration as well. You know, when you see your livelihood taken away by some big boat, you know, in front of your eyes, when you see your son uh, killed in the water because a vessel run in onto your boat, um, when you see your gear destroyed, it actually increases the likelihood of occurrence of conflicts. Um, and sometimes it drives extreme reactions. You know, we call that, then we call that piracy. Um, some other times it's protests, civil protests, but it really, it has a wide scope of impacts, both economic in terms of income, in terms of livelihoods, but also social, because it does really break the community cohesion. And there is another impact that we often fail to mention is that at a certain point, people 
people have to react. You know, when you lose your livelihood um, and you, you have to survive, basically, what do you do if you have no alternative legal livelihoods uh, in front of you? You will likely engage in illicit activities. We did the research recently, a paper that we released this year, where we found that coastal fishermen, especially in Latin America, for example, would increasingly engage or increase uh, illicit drug trafficking or use their boats to such illicit activities. Other fishermen would engage in illegal fishing. You know, when you're in the community, you don't have, you don't have catch opportunities. You will likely use, for example, illegal gear. You know, you will throw explosives in the water to catch fish more easily and to have access to that fish. And so it's another impact that we fail to often mention, but it's there. A lot of people might think that it would be the responsibility of the governments of the countries that have these local communities who are negatively impacted by these fishing practices to step in or um, somehow negotiate a change in behavior. Is there, are there any reasons why the state governments of these communities are not as assertive as they otherwise could be? I think that before they address the impacts or the symptoms of the issue, they have to address the issue, which is here, illegal fishing and criminality at sea. That is a core problem. They should not negotiate. There is no negotiation there. They should end the problem. However, um, it's not necessarily a will issue. Um, it's more often uh, than the will, it's more often the capacity issue. They cannot, they're pressurized. There were cases where um, forced labor could not be investigated by a government because they felt that there was some diplomatic pressures and economic pressures, so they couldn't do much. But there's also a capacity problem, you know. The Port State Measures Agreement could only be implemented, for example, if you could have access to inspectors at the port, you know, proper inspection. So it is first, really a capacity issue then there is the will you know there is corruption and things like that but the issue the core issue has to be addressed before addressing the impacts or maybe it should be done in parallel while they're addressing the actual issue so that people can actually see that the government is reacting and doing something um, and yes it is the role of the government to be able to provide alternative livelihood options for the people within the coastal communities Yes, but again, it's really important to address the issue itself. What causes these problems within the communities? If it's illegal fishing, then that problem needs to be solved. I was wondering if you could explain a bit more the relationship that these distant water fishing fleets have with the governments, either local or national or the relationship that China has with these governments where they will pay into certain institutions in the government or pay for their fishing practices by way of you know, buildings or infrastructure and what that looks like on the ground. Sure. So the relationship between the governments is always there. I would say China and these countries, um, there have been decades long relationships, I would say, economic, diplomatic relationships. China has invested in, um, in these places quite a lot, uh, I might say. I had the opportunity to sit down at a negotiation between a Chinese company. Well, I call it a Chinese company because even the business card of the company was written in Chinese, but they were based in fact in Tanzania at a PO, PO box address. Uh, and how it works is usually you have an underlying framework 
uh, that support such negotiations. For example, China is present through a project, let's say building a road, building a dam, building a hospital, providing some military equipment, um, building a fishing factory, for example, not a fishing factory, but building like a, a processing factory and things like that, a port. And within that framework, there are several deals that, that pass under that umbrella, one of which is you know, allowing the fleet to be operating in these countries. So sometimes the agreement, as opposed to EU uh, Sustainable Fisheries Partnership Agreements, uh, which usually occur for in the exchange, you know, like you, you get a deal, you pay for that deal straightforward, the money goes to the treasury and goes towards some strategic uses, and you go fishing. For China, it's less straightforward than that. Like it really has and relies on heavy bureaucratic processes, you know, like multiple departments, because you will have, for example, a construction project, you know, as a payment for a fishing deal. And this is not very uncommon. It's actually not uncommon at all. So you will see on the field, for example, you go to Mauritania and they will tell you this fishing shed, uh, which is very important to our coastal community, uh, has been built by the Chinese company, like the uh, Hong Long Fishing or Fisheries, which had a deal with Mauritania for 25 years. And people see it, they can touch it. It's something that is tangible. So they said, you know, at least we could see this money, at least we could use it, even though they know that the deal is not necessarily sustainable or long-term or not necessarily a good deal, but they could feel it. People will tell you, see this road, it's been built by by a Chinese company, basically. And that road was built under the umbrella of a fishing agreement. Same thing for a hospital, for a stadium. It's something that it's tangible that you could actually see. What should China do within the next, um, we could say three or four years to address this problem? I think that China has been already doing something that I really uh, like very much, which is uh, the they have a uh, blacklist, their own blacklist of fishing vessels and companies. So um, they remove subsidies from vessels and companies who have been engaging illegally um, in the waters of other countries. However, it is not enough. It's far from being enough. They have, they have to address the opacity of the ownership. They have to address these massive illegal fishing practices a little more proactively. Um, it's not there yet. So um, they are building I would say building back a reputation, um, it takes time. Uh, it's difficult, uh, there, it's a massive fleet uh, that it's not necessarily easy to control, but they are, I think, undertaking some positive steps forward. Um, and for the, the US and Canada, um, and we can say the EU as well, are there any steps that they can take with China in, I don't know, international organizations or just kind of unilaterally on their own to address this problem? It's a very sensitive question, I would say, uh, because it basically inter interventions by the US. Canada does not intervene that much um, in this realm, but interventions by, by the US and the EU, particularly the EU that plays the role of an international police when it comes to fisheries with the, with the, uh, the reading, the, carding system um, can be perceived as um, stepping up on some toes, I would say. Um, the EU has been proactive in carding countries that have not been very compliant in, in terms of illegal fishing, human trafficking, and slavery, and issues like that. But surprisingly, not that much with China. And I think that there are some diplomatic issues there. The EU cannot just step on the toes of China. It would be 
uh, more harmful, um, maybe even useful. That's at least how they might be considering it. I do not know the underlying reasons, but it could be perceived really like something not very welcomed by China in this context. Collaboration maybe, but I don't see it happening anytime soon um, because they have really different positions. You know, as I said, again, the EU takes the role of the international police when it comes to this. The United States a little less, they're less and less engaging um, in terms of, you know, diplomatic processes, but more and more in terms of, you know, building capacity in the coastal states. Uh, the coastal navy, for example, the coast guard's capacity, they go there, they help train them uh, through various operations. There are so many examples in West and East Africa that I could talk about. Uh, and that's the role that they really take. But in terms of negotiations with China, for example, uh, I don't I don't see that happening. At least I don't know of those processes if they happen. Um, the other thing is that these countries, these three countries that you just mentioned, have to clean their backyards first. Um, before they pretend to be, you know, uh, international police. So the EU, for example, has a problem with the Spanish fleet. It's not, it's no news that um, much of the EU fleet, for example, in the IOTC area, the Indian uh, Ocean, uh, Indian Ocean area, the Western Indian Ocean area, many vessels shut down their automatic uh, identification system, their satellite system, which is illegal. Uh, they cannot do that, but they still do, and they're not necessarily reprimanded for it. Um, same thing in Canada. Canada is now a platform for shell corporations. You will see some shell corporations that are involved in um, ownership of illegal fishing vessels across the, the coast of West Africa, for example, some very, very problematic that have to do with Russian ownership and Russian operations in the region. In the United States, the backyard is full of, you know, drug traffickers on some small-scale fishing vessels and some large-scale fishing vessels. So it is not necessarily something you need to show that you're a good example before engaging in a diplomatic relationship with a country that is not necessarily a good example. So it's really important to mention that none of these countries has a clean backyard to begin with, or their operations are clean somewhere else. So it's important to mention that. That's great. I just have one more question. When organizations like EcoTrust Canada, um, where you're the principal investigator for fisheries, or Global Fishing Watch, which I believe was one of, if not the organization that reported the recent incident of distant water fishing by a Chinese fleet in waters off North Korea, when organizations like these report incidences of illegal fishing or over-exploitation of fisheries, who, who listens? Can you communicate directly with governments or do you have the ear of international organizations? There is a lot of engagement going on uh, between either global fishing watching countries and between ourselves and countries and governments. Um, I believe that transparency is important, but moreover, information democracy is important much more than that, because if that's how you make sure that people benefit from that transparency, like, and the right people benefit from it. So um, there's a lot of engagement going on, obviously, for example, like in really simple processes is to communicate back any information that exists or that we have to the right people or the people that should be concerned about that information. Um, it's something that we do quite often. Um, there is uptake. It is, for example, we created spyglass.fish, which is a, a platform that publishes the criminal record of fishing vessels. And the idea is to make it simple. So 
governments can just check the criminal record of fishing vessels and companies before they license them. It's very easy, it's very simple, it does not require much resources or money or anything, but it's something that is used right now by governments, uh, some governments at least, um, and I hope it will be used much more in the future. It's only six months old, uh, seven months old now, but um, hopefully it's gonna be more, there is more uptake in the future. Yeah, I, I was checking that out a couple days ago before the this interview, and it is really cool. I mean, I had no idea that anybody like me, I can just go onto this website and see all of these reports on, you know, laid out on a map. It seems like it must be a really exciting development. Actually, I'm not sure if there was something like this even 10 years ago, at least not open to the public. So it does seem really, really interesting. Do you know if China or the Bureau of Fisheries is one of those governments that knows about, is aware of this map or other maps and is using it? I don't know. Um... I'm not sure that I'm very well appreciated in China, I would say, because of the research. I don't know. I hope they do, to be honest. Um, uh, but I, I just don't know. Hopefully, well, if they have a blacklist, then hopefully they're at least trying to keep tabs on this a bit on, on their own. Yeah, they do. And they publish it. They're very transparent about it. So they do publish it. Yeah, wow, that's great. All right. So those are all my questions. But thank you so, so much. For more on U.S.-China interaction in key developing sectors, visit us at ncuscr.org slash horizons.